Hello, this is Rachel Kleinfeld. I'm a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a board member at the National Endowment for Democracy, Freedom House, and States United for Democracy. And you're listening to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Please listen carefully. Carefully. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Utterly Moderate, the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and make sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you're there. I'm your host, Lauren Seppard. We've got a jam-packed one for you today. First up is Rachel Kleinfeld, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She's here to talk about the threat of authoritarianism and political violence in the U.S. In segment two, we've got Ken White, a criminal defense attorney and civil litigator in Los Angeles who writes about criminal justice and free speech issues. You can check out his newsletter as well as his podcast, Serious Trouble, in our show description. He'll help us think about the various threats to our democracy from a legal perspective. Now, before we get to Ms. Kleinfeld and Mr. White, there's a few articles and podcasts that I want to draw your attention to that inform today's episode. The first comes from a friend of ours and frequent guest on this pod, Tom Nichols, over at The Atlantic, titled, The New Era of Political Violence is Here. In the article, he argues that the danger is not organized civil war, but individual Americans with deep resentments and delusions. You can check it out. It's in The Atlantic on August 15th. I will link to it in the show description, but I want to read a really long quote from it here because it's really, really good and it informs today's episode. Nichols writes, quote, We should no longer wonder if we can avert a new era of political violence in the United States. It's already here. Civil war is among the many terms we now use too easily. The American Civil War was a bloodbath, driven by the inevitable confrontation between the Union and the organized forces of sedition and slavery. But at least the Civil War was about something. The United States now faces a different kind of violence from people who believe in nothing, at least in nothing real. All of us face random threats and unpredictable dangers from people among us who spend too much time watching television and plunging down internet rabbit holes. These people, acting individually or in small groups, will be led not by rebel generals, but narcissistic wannabe heroes, and they'll be egged on by cowards and instigators will inflame them from the safety of a television or radio studio, or from behind the shield of elected office. Occasionally, they'll congeal into a mob. There is no single principle that unites these Americans in their violence against their fellow citizens. They'll tell you they're for liberty and freedom, but these are merely code words for personal grudges, racial and class resentments, and a generalized paranoia that dark forces are manipulating their lives. These are not people who are going to take up the flag of a state or of a deeper cause. They have already taken up the flag of a failed president, and their causes are a farrago of conspiracy theories and pulpy science fiction plots. What makes this situation worse is that there is no remedy for it. When people are driven by fantasies, by resentment, by an internalized sense of inferiority, 
There is no redemption in anything. Winning elections, burning effigies, even shooting at other citizens does not soothe their anger, but instead deepens the spiritual and moral void that haunts them. Some of these people are ready to snap and to resort to violence, but that doesn't stop charlatans and con artists from throwing matches at the fuses every day. They'll gladly risk the occasional explosion here and there if it means living the good life. We are going to be living in this era of political violence for the foreseeable future. All any of us can do is continue, among our friends and family and neighbors, to say and defend what is right in the face of lies and delusions. End quote. Be sure to check out that piece from Tom Nichols. We've linked to it in the show description. It's really good. Something else related to today's episode that I want to draw your attention to is the Bulwark podcast with Charlie Sykes from August 11th. Charlie had Dana Milbank on the program. He's a nationally syndicated columnist for the Washington Post. He was there to talk about a new book that he has out, and their conversation covered a variety of topics, including the danger of this moment and the threat of political violence. Here's a really good clip. So let's talk about where we're at right now. Um, I I just want to stress once again that, you know, in our news cycle, even during the dog days, there seems to be this inexorable need and demand that everybody have hot takes uh, about everything. We Mm -hmm. still don't know what happened at Mar-a-Lago, right? I mean, we still don't know what they were looking for, why Mm -hmm. they raided Mar-a-Lago, and we don't know what they found, do we? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charlie, if we were in a normal system right now, uh, we would say, okay, this doesn't look uh, as a legal matter. This doesn't look good for the president. And everybody would be counseling people to take a deep breath because we don't know the facts. Mm -hmm. And instead, what we're hearing right now from Fox News is we're under attack, greatest attack in the history of our republic. We're hearing from Newsmax that Trump is in danger of being assassinated. We're hearing from elected Republicans in Congress saying things like, they're coming after you, no one is safe. This is reckless rhetoric that is designed to rile people up at a time when everybody's already uh, so close to the edge. And of course, it only takes uh, one lunatic to cause mass mayhem. So, you know, we're at a, in, in totally uh, uncharted grounds here. I mean, I compared it this week to the, the run up to the Oklahoma City bombing when people were just playing with fire as the uh, militias were growing in power. And I, I really fear that we're at that kind of moment again. Well, you wrote this week, I would like nothing more than to be wrong about this, but the reckless response by the GOP Fox News access to the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago makes it feel as though we're falling into the abyss. And coincidentally, I quoted that in my newsletter yesterday saying, I too would like you to be wrong about this, but you're not. This does feel like a uniquely dangerous moment. And it's the moment at which you would hope that if there are still responsible voices on the right in the Republican Party, this would be the moment that they would be, you know, raising, you know, caution flags. And yet they are whipping it up, providing the permission structure for the most absurd and obscene conspiracy theories and characterizations of their own government. 
Yeah, and I mean, I could see them, you know, wanting to rally behind uh, Donald Trump. But the, the the way in which this is being done now is to it's a deliberate effort to turn people against the government to believe that the government is out to get them. And this is exactly the sort of thing we were seeing uh, from the likes of Steve Stockman. Remember him and Helen yeah. uh, Chenoweth back in 1994. You know, if the ATF agents are, you know, coming for you, you know, take a headshot, you know, kill uh, kill the SOB, said Gordon Liddy. And look, that's why I said I'd really like to be wrong about this, but we're already at a point of violence. And if you look at, as some have at the, you know, pro-Trump boards and, and social media, they're talking, you know, huge talk of civil war, calls to arms, when does the shooting begin, bloodshed. And, you know, as, as I was saying a moment ago, it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to have some coordinated patriot group or oath keepers doing this. You need to have one guy uh, in his basement who just, you know, has a 3D printer and just made a, a switch for his uh, his Glock handgun that allows it to fire 15 rounds in a, in a second. Um, so it, it just uh, it just seems to me, you know, you, you, you never want to say any one piece of rhetoric is responsible for any one act of a madman, but a whole lot of inflammatory rhetoric is going to uh, cause things to go badly. And people, I think, do need to understand, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, seditious conspiracies and insurrection attempts to overthrow the government. However, the other side of that story is, is that if you convince enough Americans that your government is indistinguishable from East Germany or communist Cuba, if in fact they are oppressive tyrants who are destroying the constitution, if you convince people that in fact the election was stolen, then it is not a completely irrational response to say, then we should overthrow that government, right? I mean, this is what sows the seed that that if you look at police and law enforcement and the federal government, as jackbooted thugs who pose an imminent threat to everything that America stands for, then then the patriotic thing is to fight back and to engage in insurrection. And this is the danger. I'm not defending it or providing a rationalization, but to just underline the real danger of what happens if people begin to think that the democratic process is completely illegitimate. And the only response to this kind of tyranny is 1776 is to shoot these guys in the head if they are about yeah. to take away your your rights phew this is a really really scary moment i can't help but make a plug here for our trustworthy news guide if you go to connorsforum.org it's in the news literacy section we've developed a very reliable rubric for deciding which media outlets are trustworthy and which ones are not and it shows no favor to one political side or the other It, of course, disqualifies outlets like Fox News and Newsmax on the right, but it also disqualifies outlets on the left if they regularly run biased and or unreliable information. So CNN and MSNBC and a variety of others get disqualified. Uh, Doesn't matter if you're left. Doesn't matter if you're right. If you are not providing reliable information the vast majority of the time, you get disqualified by our reliable rubric. So go check it out. Trustworthy News Guide, ConnorsForum.org. Here are a few more short clips from the Bulwark podcast, much shorter this time, related to the role that untrustworthy media plays in all of this. Well, uh, crucially, they've destroyed our shared sense of the truth. The idea that, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, but not, as Moynihan said, to your own facts. Now, they, we are entitled to, <laughs> to our own set of facts. It's impossible as Liz Cheney said, to live in a free society when you can't agree on the truth. 
Well, there's a lot of focus on the influence of Fox News, which I think people who listen to this uh, understand. But Fox News is only part of what had developed into this uh, sort of a hermetically sealed right wing media ecosystem. You can live in a world in which, you know, not only are there no legitimate arguments or facts uh, or issues that, that that you need to confront that might challenge your worldview, but that you can really bask in a world that reinforces all of your priors and that is constantly designed to make you paranoid, outraged, and angry at anyone who doesn't agree with you. Check out that episode from the Bulwark podcast. It's really good. The last article I'll draw your attention to before bringing in our guests This one from the Associated Press, I'll link to it in the show description. It talks about the threats being faced by judges in our legal system and what this says about the future of our democracy. Lots I could quote from here, but I'll just read one from Stephen Levitsky. He's a Harvard political scientist and co-author of How Democracies Die. He was quoted in the article as saying, quote, This is a classic precursor of a democratic breakdown. To call this a warning sign is an understatement, end quote. All right, well, I hope you hang around for segment two. We'll be joined by Ken White. But first up is Rachel Kleinfeld. She's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She's here to talk about all of this and what all of it means for the future of our society. Rachel Kleinfeld, thank you so much for joining the program. So glad to be here. Thank you. All right. So I asked this question of Jonathan Last from The Bulwark and Tom Nichols from The Atlantic on our last episode. So I'll ask you, uh, what percentage chance do you give? I know you probably hate these kinds of questions, but what percentage chance do you give that 2024 triggers a slide into authoritarianism in the U.S.? Um I don't like to answer questions with percentages, especially because that particular question depends on the next two elections. Um, But I will say we're already headed away from democracy. I don't want to say toward authoritarianism because it can be a lot of things. But if you look at the Economist Intelligence Unit, Freedom House, varieties of democracy, all the academic indices show really fast and steady slides away from democracy in the United States. Some of them start at different times. Some of them start as far back as 2010 or even 2000. But um, but we're on that trajectory. And I would say in 2024, particularly if President, former President Trump decides to run again, um, we'll be in a, in a rough situation that, that might accelerate that decline. I think you just made an important point, which I think a lot of people need to hear. When I talk to a lot of people, I'm not a political scientist. So when I talk to people about this issue, it can sound kind of anecdotal, right? Like, oh, this thing happened and it scared you, or you didn't like this party being in power. But what I'm really referring to is a lot of what you're talking about, particular indices which have measured the strength of democracy over time and have seen a decline. So could you talk about some of those measures and what they've been showing? Sure. So basically on every international measure we have, America's democracy is declining. And it's also declining, by the way, in the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index, which is a different index that measures your rule of law, how well you um, maintain security and contract uh, stability and all sorts of things. What's interesting about the fact that it's so many different measures is that these measures are different. They measure different things. So Freedom House, I sit on the board there, um, that measure measures civil and political liberties, some social liberties, you know, do you have the right to move around without violence, things like that. Um, 
the varieties of democracy index has, I think, about 100 variables that it's looking at. Um, Economist Intelligence Unit is looking at business variables as well as others. So they're all different and they're all pushing in the same direction. And what that means is that American democracy is declining in a lot of ways. Um, at the same time. They also start before Trump. They accelerate with the, the um, ascension of former President Trump. Um, and he definitely played a significant role in his administration. But they start beforehand because America is now um, the most polarized country of any developed democracy we've seen in at least the last 50 years. We've been more polarized for longer than any other developed democracy. And that has led to a really steady decline in our ability to just get government done, get things um, moving. And when that stops, when you get gridlock at the top, a lot of people resort to extra democratic measures to get things done. They, they try to push through laws in different ways. They try to suppress voting. They, they try to do all sorts of things to get your government to work. And that's what we're seeing in America. Yeah. One of the things that you've noted in your writing, a lot of people have noted is not so much that we're polarized on the issues or the policies, but it's a tribalism of, I, I care just a little more that they lose than my side wins. And you've noted in your writing that this negative partisanship could let us slide into authoritarianism, not because we're choosing it. People may actually want democracy, but they're letting their side get away with things increasingly. So, the other side loses. Uh, can you talk about negative partisanship and the danger this poses? You're absolutely right. And it's a really serious uh, problem. I, I've been saying that polarization is opening the door to autocracy in this country. And people think, oh, autocracy, you know, America's never going to be autocratic. That's crazy talk. What I try to remind people is um, during Jim Crow, which was almost 100 years, we had 11 states where you had one party rule, only Southern Democrats were ever going to win. And, you know, you could fight among flavors of Southern Democrat, but between voter suppression and outright violence, um, and the ways in which the votes were um, were pushed in that area, we had what we would call in political science, autocratic rule, one party rule. And so that's what we're talking about here is, is a kind of very legalistic um, move toward this. We see it in Hungary right now. Um, and, and Turkey just became uh, not free at all after a slide into this. So that's what we're talking about. And when we look at this affective polarization in America, um, this is what would let it happen. There's a terrific political scientist called Spolik who's written about this internationally and in America measuring how much would you prefer that the other party lose? And the numbers are surprising. I mean, you get only five, six, seven percent of people willing to cross party lines and vote on the other side. They'll answer surveys that they're more willing, but when you actually see voting, it's even less. Um, when the other side, uh, does something undemocratic. And the reason for that's real clear. The sides are so um, different in their policy beliefs. You know, there used to be a lot of overlap. A Rockefeller Republican from the Northeast and a Southern Democrat um, could agree on a lot. Now, the policy positions are almost diametrically opposed. People are really afraid of living on the other side, but they also hate each other. Um, it's a real personal feeling of dislike that, that transcends policy. And a lot of that has to do with misunderstandings about the other side, but some of it's real. And because of that, we're willing to do anything to keep the other side out of power, including losing our democracy. You mentioned Hungary. Um, there's been a real love affair with Hungary. I mean, CPAC just held some big event there, which I would say is pretty clear alignment. Uh, so 
The first thing I'd like for you to do is because a lot of people, for a variety of reasons, we're geographically isolated. Our media rules the world. There's lots of reasons why we don't know a lot about other countries. But before I ask you the second part of this question, describe to our listeners, what does democracy look like in Hungary? So in Hungary, um, it used to be a democracy. Let me start out with that. It used to be a real functioning democracy. Viktor Orban, the current president, won one term. He was actually pretty democratic. Then he lost. When he lost, he um, came up with a game plan. And it's a game plan that looks pretty darn similar to what we're seeing among the Trumpist Republicans, that faction of the Republicans here. First, he purged his own party of anyone who didn't agree with him. So um, in that case, the purge was nonviolent. Hungary does not have a lot of guns and so on. But, um, but it was really, a, you know, you're with me or the highway. This is my party. And he, he purged it all. And then he came up with all sorts of ideas that the next time he got in power, he immediately started implementing. So he altered the voting in various places so that he would have a super majority. He did that by creating carve outs for minority groups, for um, changing the ways in which people voted, things that looked real legalistic. And he um, would point to things that other countries in the EU did. So anytime anyone would say, wait a minute, that's giving you a supermajority, he would say, oh, but this is what Germany does. This is what France does. This is what Sweden does. So no one could really pin it down. But the whole of all the legal changes was that it was extremely hard to unseat him and his parliament. And once he got that supermajority, he altered the constitution. He took over the media. He caused media um, companies to sell to him, sell to his cronies, or he just closed them using regulatory activities, sort of like turning the IRS on a company here. And then he took over the judiciary. And what we see now is that in the last election, all six opposition parties, they don't have a two-party system, so all six opposition parties ganged up to run one candidate against him in the hopes that they could win. And, and that's a lot. The six opposition parties range from far left to really quite far right. And they said, look, saving our democracy is worth it. Let's run somebody against him, one person. And they still lost because of how tilted the playing field is, also because their candidate might not have been the best, but largely because of the tilted playing field. And so Orban now has the judiciary. He has the media under his control. He's altered the constitution and he has changed the voting system so that he really can't be unseated in any normal form short of violence. So given all that, how has Rachel Kleinfeld, like as you've seen this love affair, I mean, this isn't some small thing. This is not some fringe, you know, Stormfront website or something like that. This is Tucker Carlson taking his show to Hungary several times. This is CPAC holding events there. So what's been your reaction to this love affair? Um, I think it's extremely dangerous. Hungary, it's not just that Hungary is some little small country in the middle of nowhere. Hungary is a close ally of Russia. And Russia has been filtering policies into the EU through Hungary for a number of years now. Um, so by creating this love affair with Hungary, it's a way of getting close to uh, Russians' foreign policy without having to admit that you're getting close to Russia's foreign policy at a time when they've waged war on Ukraine. Um, Russia really wants to destabilize democracies all around the world. They, they don't have a very positive vision of the world. What they want to do is just make sure that democracies can't win because that's good for their system. So it's great for them if the United States tears itself apart by cozying up to Hungary. Hungary has also said that they want to export what they call illiberal democracy. 
And what do they mean by that? Well, Orban just gave a speech, I think last week, where he talked about, um, you know, that they were going to be overrun by immigrants, that they needed to keep their blood pure, um, that they uh, that they couldn't have miscegenation, um, races marrying and having children together. And it was so bad that his own foreign minister, who stuck through it with him through this whole destruction of democracy, I should add, resigned and said, look, that was a speech worthy of Goebbels, the, the Nazi propagandist. He's still invited to headline the CPAC conference in Texas next week. So this is the man that they're cozying up to. And he has a playbook at the first CPAC conference last year that they had, in, not the first one ever, but the first one they had held in Hungary. I doubt it'll be their last. Um, he released, I think, a 12-point playbook of here's how you turn a country into an illiberal, fake democracy like he's done. So this isn't playing around. This is really Russia filtered through Hungary. Uh, Hungary is frankly smarter about how you undermine democracy because he did it, um, looking at how to get it into the United States to infiltrate our own system. So, uh, in, in one of your previous answers, you talked about when we were talking about negative partisanship, you talked a little bit about the sort of dehumanization of the other side. And in some of your interviews and your writings, you've mentioned that this is one of the stages of the slide away from democracy. Um, so, tell us what you mean by that, sort of what that stage is, how it's manifesting in the U.S., and what it leads to next. Sure. So, dehumanization is not necessary for a slide away from democracy, but it is necessary for a slide toward violence. And there's a real clear trajectory when you see countries that descend into a lot of political violence. Dehumanization is one stage on that slide, and it's a really clear one. Basically, um, in any population, you have a certain number of people with what's called an aggressive personality. You can measure that using various uh, techniques to ask, you know, how quick are they to anger and so on. Um, aggressive personalities are who mostly commit violence and they commit criminal violence. They can commit political violence. They're, they're just more likely to get hot-headed and, and do something that they'll hopefully regret later. Um, most people don't commit violence. Most people are strongly socialized against violence from, you know, the time when they're little kids and their parents tell them not to hit their brother or sister. It's really hard to get normal adults to commit violence against other adults. They're so used to thinking of um, all the things that could happen to them if they do. The way you break that inhibition down is by dehumanizing the other side so that they become less than human. Um, you know, the Nazis used this when they would call Jews vermin and uh, refer to bugs in Rwanda and the genocide. Famously, they did very similar language, Serbia. Um, but you also see it in smaller ways. So, um, the language of groomers, uh, you know, that's a way of dehumanizing um, in a really big way because obviously nobody likes pedophiles, but groomers is even another, another level up of, of lack of humanization. Um, when you uh, refer to people with uh, racist or mis uh, misogynistic jokes, jokes have a way of getting past our normal brain function that says, oh, that was a horrible thing. We just said that we were going to kill someone. We're not going to do that. A joke seems funny, even if it's saying the same thing and people pass it on and it um, lowers inhibitions again. So what we found with dehumanization globally is that it lowers inhibitions to violence and it also can make people scared. That's where the vermin and the bugs and these kind of metaphors, groomers, come in because people are scared of these things. And so you both up the threat level and you lower the humanity level. And that allows regular people to um, more, more quickly embrace violence. Then the last thing that has to happen is people need to feel that they're being defensive. People, most people won't commit violence offensively. 
But if they think they're protecting their community, they're protecting their family, they're protecting innocent children, then they will commit violence. Many, many people will commit violence. So again, that groomer's rhetoric, you're protecting innocent children from pedophiles. Boy, can you get a lot of people to commit violence with that kind of language. Um, and similar with, with some of the jokes and the racism and so on. The, the idea that you're protecting the American way of life, you're protecting your community. Um, this leads you pretty far down the road to getting normal people to commit violence. Yeah, a lot of my leftist friends who would say things to me like, I can't believe what happened on January 6th. And I said, really? Like, if you thought that there was like a cabal of pedophiles and they had legitimately stolen an election, and this was legitimately 1776 again, you really can't see that happening? Seems like an obvious next step, right? I think you're totally right. I think many people, um, because the two sides of our political coin um, really don't understand each other very well. The misbeliefs about the other side are, are enormous. And frankly, they're the biggest among highly educated people who seek out media on the left. And they're next biggest among highly educated people who seek out media and politics news on the right. Um, so it's your chattering class who's, who's the least likely to understand the other side. And because of that, they don't take them at face value. So, you know, if you really believed, as you said, these things, you know, if you really believe your election's being stolen, the people who most believe in our democracy are actually the Trumpist um, Republican rank and file who believe in the big lie, who believe that the election was stolen. Um, that's a problem. It's a problem when people are being fed lies, but they they really care about those things. They really care about our democracy. And that's what they're trying to defend that and their own kids. So, I think you were writing, I don't know if it was in a review of somebody else's work, uh, but I was reading you talking about how power attracts uh, the worst people. <laughs> <laughs> that was a book uh, review, yeah. By Brian, uh, uh, is it Cass? Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, but... Uh, I definitely think power attracts less than honorable people. And there was two books recently that really kind of underscored this for me. Mark Leibovich's Thank You for Your Servitude and Tim Miller's Why We Did It. And it seems to suggest that like we could easily slide into authoritarianism if there's a political class that their power, status, relevance would be served by it. It seems like they would be the Lindsey Grahams of the world would just go along with it. So... My, my question to you is, and you can, you can take issue with my first part of this question if you'd like, but my, my real question to you is, if you can wave a magic wand tomorrow, knowing there are less than honorable people in the system waiting to take advantage of weaknesses, which guardrails would you strengthen? Like the Electoral Count Act, like can you name the, the things we need to shore up to protect ourselves against people who would use them to autocratic ends? Sure. Um I definitely would strengthen the Electoral Count Act. I'd strengthen um, the Electoral Count Act Plus, which is the parts of it that are trying to plus up um, uh, uh, judicial and, and criminal penalties for people who threaten election workers and things like that. Um, I'd come up with all sorts of other way. I've actually got a four-page document that I've been circulating around Congress on things that they could do and another four-pager for executive agencies on things they could do. Um, but what I would really do if I had a magic wand is make people respect politicians again. Um, I know that sounds hard, but the fact is we are a democracy. We can only be governed by politicians that we elect. So if we denigrate all these politicians, if we make their jobs miserable, I mean, those jobs now 
you fly from your home to Washington, D.C. for three days a week, then you fly all the way back home to wherever you live, Kansas or Wyoming or what have you. Um, the whole time, people are one half of the population is hating you. The other half of the population is both fawning on you and pushing you to do more. You get very little done in your job day to day because our government barely works. Um, who wants that kind of a job? You don't actually make a huge amount of money. You make a lot more money than most Americans, but it's a lot less than people with your level of education and, and ability in your, your peer group. Who wants those jobs? Narcissists want those jobs because the only real thing you get from that job is the little dopamine hit of, oh, everybody knows my name. I get to be on television. So we're getting what we pay for here. You know, if we want politicians who are honorable people, we need to give them some honor and we need to expect more of them and hold them to account for, for that. When, when Theodore Roosevelt wanted to start getting into politics, we had a similar political class, really venal, really corrupt. Um, back then, corruption was very open. The big oil magnates and the trusts and the you know Rockefellers and so on of the day were just buying off politicians very openly. And when Theodore Roosevelt wanted to get into politics, his family was just horrified. And they said, absolutely not. You can't get into politics. That's what really low class corrupt people do. Not our family. We're an old New York family. Well, you know, luckily he did get into politics and luckily his, I think, cousin got into politics later on, FDR. But um and they ran for separate parties, obviously. But, you know, you need people of honor to run for office. And if we cannot give some honor to our politicians, we're going to get these narcissists who have no moral compass and very little ideology, actually. Um, all they want to do is, is maintain power. And that's what we're getting right now. So let's talk. You've written extensively about uh, what we could do to improve. And so... Before I get to that, I want to ask you a question. You gave us an example of a country like Hungary that slid away from democracy. Can you give us the opposite example of a country that, um, in recent memory, that was not a healthy democracy but became one? That's a great question. Um, so we've been in a global democratic recession for 16 years. That means more countries are losing their democracies than gaining. And there's been very few countries that have been actually uh, improving their democracies. But there have been some. For instance, Liberia fought um, a series of horrible wars, um, just really devastating wars in the early 2000s. And then they uh, had a UN-backed peace process. And since then, they've been steadily, steadily getting better. They're not amazing on their democracy, but they're a lot better than they were when they were um, very, very war-torn. And that's been a really positive development. There's a handful of other countries, mostly in Africa, that have been improving their democracies as well. And what you see is that that's a really unsung process. People notice when it goes backward, they don't really pay a lot of attention when you do the things you're supposed to do, you know, elect people and there's no violence, um, move your economy forward, reduce corruption slowly but steadily. These are unsung successes, but they are happening. Have you ever had a successful conversation with somebody who's bought into the big lie and bought into this authoritarian slide and really broken through to them and say, hey, you really need to see that if this was on, if the shoe was on the other foot, you would see this as authoritarianism? Have you ever had a, a, a positive breakthrough? And if so, what was the message you used? Um, I never had, but I've never tried all that much, to be honest. Um, and, you know, maybe if I tried harder, I would. But I think that the the thing about the people who believe in, in that um, belief set is that it's an identity. Similar to people that you know who um, 
who haven't gotten the COVID vaccine yet. You know, it's not really about the vaccine anymore. It's about an identity of not being vaccinated. Same with the people who were first to get vaccinated and now can't believe that Biden got it because they were doing all the right things. You know, some of this is a little bit like magic incantation. Um, we're, we're performing various activities in the hopes that they will keep us safe, but really it's about connecting with our tribe and our group. And so you don't break a connection with a tribe through reason and conversation. What you need to do is give people another tribe that they can belong to that's pro-democratic. And it's one of the reasons that I've been arguing a lot for things like ranked choice voting, primary reform, final four. These different kinds of voting reforms all do basically the same thing, which is that they could let multiple Republicans run against each other and multiple Democrats run against each other. And that way you can keep your tribe. You're a conservative Republican whose belief set very much ties you to that identity. Great. You don't have to vote for the anti-democratic candidate who won a very safe primary. You could instead vote for a pro-democratic Republican the way that we used to have with John McCain and Liz Cheney and things like that. I've heard a lot of chatter recently about the forward party and, you know, third parties and uh, I've also read a lot of people who've written and tried to do some analyses that, hey, you know, this party probably wouldn't pull that many people from the MAGA crowd, but it probably would pull a lot of people from the Democratic crowd. And then you're basically just electing authoritarians. What would be your response to, yes, all these ideas for a third way are great, but not for this election? Third parties don't work in America. That's why I've been backing things like ranked choice voting where you don't have spoilers because... In those forms of voting, everyone's up against each other. You can vote your conscience and, and you don't have to worry about spoiling your vote because it'll just go to your second choice and your third choice. Third choice parties, or sorry, th uh, third parties don't work in America because, um, first of all, they can't get the money and the electoral infrastructure. It's state by state. It's really, really hard. Um, I spent a decade running a political nonprofit that was very active in that space. Second of all, um, moderates believe that there are lots of people like them because they're overrepresented among um, sort of deep thinking people who have podcasts and so on. But when you actually do the surveys, what you see is that tiny percentages, I don't want to quote a number because I'll forget it, but uh, or because I won't get it right, but tiny percentages of Americans want a socially liberal and economically conservative party, which is what most moderates think is a, is a big percentage of the country. Most want the opposite, actually. Um, you get far greater numbers of people who want a socially conservative or even a liberal party that has big economic redistribution. And that's the kind of party that we see that started to win in Europe, uh, Le Pen's party in France and so on, the um, AFD in Germany. These, are these nothing for your side, a lot more for my group. Um, kinds of parties, that does pretty well. Um, and it would do well in America too. And so third parties don't work on the sort of practicalities of them, but also on the ideology of them. And that's why things like ranked choice voting and final four that don't require that, that let you be a Republican, let you be a Democrat, but just a different flavor could work better. All right. Let's talk. Let's end the show by talking about your multi-pronged uh, plan for saving us. Uh, so, the first part of your plan is cultivating a new political alignment. What do you mean by that? Um, we need for pro-democracy Republicans and Democrats to start teaming up, at least for the next couple of elections. Um, they can choose to vote for the same candidate as in Utah, where um, Evan McMullen is running and the Democratic Party said, look, we're never going to win in Utah. We're going to get behind Evan McMullen. He's a better flavor of Republican. We need a lot more thinking like that, where 
um, the pro-democracy sides of both parties say, okay, how do we get back our democracy? Because none of our policy beliefs are going to move forward if we lose our democracy. You don't get climate legislation. You don't get anti-poverty legislation. Whatever it is you care about, it's not going to happen until we have a, a stronger democracy. So that's what a new political alignment looks like. And, and that doesn't just happen um, by triangulation, I should say. It tends to happen by really radically rethinking what it would look like to come together We've had that kind of realignment in the past in America, the progressive era. You had the progressive party. People think of it as a left-wing party, but in fact, it took from both sides. Theodore Roosevelt ran on the progressive party after running as a Republican. It had a lot of um, small business conservatives who were tired of the corruption. That was one major prong of it. And then it had a lot of middle-class women who wanted a lot of social changes, everything from playgrounds to a lack of drinking. Um, and so that was a political realignment. We've seen other political realignments in the country around, um, you know, famously at the Civil Rights Act, when um, blacks were able to vote in the South, you saw a large um, siphoning off of Democrats into the Republican Party. Um, so that's another kind of political realignment that's less positive. But a future political realignment could look um, like, how do you bring these two parties together um, around democracy. And what would that really mean? What would, what kind of policies would a party like that back that could attract some people from, from both sides? All right. Your next uh, part of your plan, next prong is shoring up institutions and norms. So here we have um, electoral count act reform. We have a lot of reforms that could happen at the state levels to make sure that the independent state legislature theory, which has um, been taken up by the Supreme Court, won't work. Um, the, the Supreme Court is is taking up a case that might let state legislatures have the final say in their elections, regardless of what the governor says, regardless of what the state constitution says, possibly regardless of what the voters say. Um, that last part really can't stand. The voters have to determine who wins our elections. And so we need to shore up the norms and also the um, rules that make sure that voters get the final say. In terms of norms, a return of more civility. Again, the Supreme Court's pushing in the wrong direction. They've made uh, votes in some cases that enable more corruption in the political sphere. So we really need the parties to start self-policing against that and start having real uh, rules. You know, if you have violence in your campaign ads, you're not going to get a committee assignment. You might win, but you're not going to get seniority in your committees. You're not going to have as much power in this body. We can, we can do that if we shore up norms. And you also say fostering social and economic reconnections. What do you mean by that? A lot of people in America right now are lonely and angry. Um, and those two things go together, by the way. Loneliness uh, leads to a lot more aggression and anger. Um, and that's leading people to seek out communities online rather than real communities where you have to deal with the fullness of an identity of somebody else. And those online communities are radicalizing people. Most people who commit violence don't belong to violent groups, but they're radicalized by these online ideas. So we need to make our communities more real again, especially in the wake of COVID. We need to do things. It sounds silly, but public concerts, public uh, cleanup days, things like that in Medellin and Colombia, at the height of their violence, they had violence um, that was over 100 times what we see in most European countries. Um, they started to do things like this, Christmas days at the river with lights on it, things to rebuild a sense of community and safety. That's really important. 
um, and things to create what we call bridging capital that connect people. You know, you ask whether I had a conversation with someone who believes in uh, the big lie. I haven't because I live in a pretty liberal place. It would actually be hard to find that kind of a person. So we need bridging capital that pulls us together. But nobody wants to get together to have a political conversation with the other side. Very, very few people. So that bridging capital has to be stuff that makes our lives easier. You know, that can be parent groups, that could be Al-Anon, that could be um, Narcotics Anonymous groups that give people back something that they need. It can be lending clubs for tools for guys who want to work or women who want to work um, with tools that they can't necessarily afford, lending circles, all sorts of things that are apolitical, but that could bring you together with people who have different political beliefs in the way that unions used to in the 70s. Rachel Kleinfeld, thank you so much for joining the program today. Could we say Yang Kleinfeld 2024? (laughs) One thing that my father told me was that if anyone likes you, they will not suggest you run for office. (laughs) Well, I like you, so I'll say don't run for office. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation, and I know I'm going to enjoy this one as well. Next up, we've got Ken White. He's a criminal defense attorney and civil litigator in Los Angeles. He writes about criminal justice and free speech issues. Check out his newsletter in the show description. Also check out his podcast, Serious Trouble. He is going to help us think about the various threats to our democracy from a legal perspective. Ken White, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. So I wanted to bring you on to talk about this really neat piece that I saw you write uh, in your Substack, which we'll get to in a moment. But uh, (laughs) since I asked you to come on, There's been, I don't know, what would you say, minor news? Yeah, just a bit of being overtaken by events there. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, since I asked you to come on the show, which was only a few days ago, uh, the FBI has raided uh, the home, the Florida home of former President Donald Trump. So uh, tell us first about your background, about your legal training, just so people understand sort of where you're coming at these questions. And then I'll ask you a bit about... Um, about this raid. So, why don't you give us your background a bit? Sure. So, after law school, I started out clerking for a federal judge, and then I got hired by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles as a federal prosecutor. And so, you know, the first six years of my career, I was prosecuting federal cases, you know, handling search warrants like the one that was uh, used to search. Mar-a-Lago, litigating federal search warrant issues. Uh, I then went into private practice. And for the last, uh, you know, my God, 21 years, um, I've been a defense lawyer, both uh, state and federal, litigating it from the other end, uh, seeing the search warrants as they play out and challenging them in court when appropriate. And uh, so I'm very familiar with the issues. All right. So tell us how one goes about obtaining a search warrant. In the federal system, you go to a federal magistrate judge. Um, District court judges are appointed by the president, confirmed by Congress, right? We see that all the time. They, the local district court judges in a particular district, appoint magistrate judges who are sort of junior judges, and they handle a lot of the day-to-day bread and butter, some would say grunt work of the federal judiciary. They're not Article Three judges. Uh, they serve for a term of like three or six years, uh, but they do things like review search warrants. So when you w- want a search warrant, you go to the magistrate who was on duty that day 
or who's been assigned randomly to this warrant, and you bring them an affidavit sworn under oath that says, here is all the evidence that I believe shows that this location has this evidence of this specified crime. And each of those is important, all right? You've got to show that there's currently going to be evidence at this place, that it's fresh. You can't just speculate, well, 10 years ago, there were documents, so maybe there are now. There's currently evidence there. It's evidence of a crime, and here the specific crime. So federal judges, in my view, hold uh, law enforcement to a much higher standard than state judges do in terms of how much information has to be there, how good the probable cause has to be, the specifics. So when I was a federal prosecutor, it was not unusual for the magistrate judge reviewing a search warrant that I had worked on to send it back saying, "Eh, I think you've got these three locations, but not the fourth one. Or I think this list of things to be seized is too broad. Take out these three items things like that. Uh, or I don't see enough freshness here. What makes you think that the stuff is still there years later? So they will do that. Uh, I'm not saying that as a criminal defense attorney, I'm thrilled with the level of protection this actually gives citizens from being searched. But I think it is notably better than in the state systems. So if the magistrate judge believes that this federal agent has under oath provided adequate evidence that there is evidence of a specified federal crime at this location, they'll sign the warrant and then you can go out and execute it. I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, there's all sorts of um, investigations and leads about January 6th. I want to focus less on the insurrection, um, which I think is important, but um, in my mind, isn't the most troublesome part of all this. I want to talk about the two things that trouble me the most, the fraudulent electors and um, the Raffensperger phone call. And the angle that I want to come at this uh, with you as a lawyer is thinking about the burden of proof, right? So thinking about the standard of evidence for, yes, there's been some criminality here. So let's, let's start with the fraudulent electors, right? So we heard, we heard a while back that these fraudulent electors existed. They got coverage actually around the time um, by the American Oversight or some organization. Um, but we've gotten a lot more. And, and uh, most recently, Haberman and Broadwater, they have these emails saying, hey, we, we, know, we know this is fake. We know it's illegal. Um, and we're doing it anyway. So I, I want to ask you, like, at, at what point do we, do we realize that there's been criminality here? I mean, in my mind, as a totally, I don't have a JD. <laughs> I don't have any legal training. People saying we know these are fake. Uh, we know this is illegal. We know it's probably unconstitutional. And we'll just do it anyway. In my mind, that's criminality. We've seen lots of reporting. There were meetings in the Oval Office about this. At what point is there criminal culpability here? I mean, what's the standard of evidence here? So I, I share your view viscerally that it's outrageous, unconstitutional, despicable. Uh, but as a defense attorney, I think it's right that we only punish things criminally that are specifically prohibited, that are covered by an existing criminal statute. And so you actually have to get down and look, okay, wait, well, so what law exactly does this violate? Not just sort of a, uh, you know, Twitter definition of what sedition is, but what actual federal law does it violate? Because it's it's dangerous uh, to just sort of... Uh, 
criminalize things based on general sense that it's against the country. I mean, I, I, the founders of America recognize, recognize this so much that they wrote into the Constitution a narrowing of the definition of treason because they were so used to it being used as a catch-all category for any crime against the state uh, that could be used for anyone out of power. So with that in mind, you've got to look at what exact crimes are being committed. And frankly, the, the, the array of federal crimes that federal prosecutors have available to them is extremely broad and extremely flexible. So if you can't find something there, <laughs> then uh, it must not be that bad, ultimately. Um, where a lot of the problems come in in criminalizing some of these things, these schemes with fake electors or these attempts to uh, persuade or perhaps bully Raffenberger or anyone else are the intent requirements. Generally, uh, as a rule, um, the more likely that a crime is to be committed by someone blue collar, the simpler it is to prove and the less of a mental state you have to prove. And the more likely a crime is to be committed by a white guy in a blue suit, the more elaborate the mental state is has to prove to say they did a crime. So uh, that's my cynical way of putting it, but I think it's largely true. So uh, in a lot of these, you've got to prove sometimes knowledge of wrongdoing fraudulent intent you know what about saying know, fake well uh <laughs> just saying fake doesn't do it so right. for instance to show that uh former president trump was conspiring uh to defraud or to obstruct an official proceeding you have to show that he knew that what he was asking for was illegitimate. A lot of the federal obstruction statutes require what's called a corrupt intent. And, and that could be a high standard to meet, uh, particularly for someone like Trump, because every, every, people get a sense that Trump is Trump, right? He, he just sort of, he's, he's pure id. He said what comes out of his mouth. He doesn't mean things in the way that you and I mean them. Uh, and so it's easy for them to say when he's saying, you know, fake election, all that, uh, he might generally believe it, or he might just be expressing himself and not somehow deliberately lying. Uh, and, and that can be a tough hurdle to get over. Uh, so it, I, I think that the more evidence that comes out in terms of um, communications among these people, things that people told Trump at the time that there was no fraud, there was no fake election, the easier it gets to prove something like that. On well, the and January 6th committee showed a lot of that with their... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I thought that... The, I did not expect much of the January 6th committee, to be honest. And I thought they did an excellent job in making a pitch really to the Justice Department, uh, trying to move the ball, trying to get them to summon the political will to do something. Because this will be all-encompassing. If, if they indict Trump, this is the main event for the foreseeable future. It's going to have dramatic and somewhat unpredictable impact on the midterms and the 2024 elections and on just about everything in politics. Uh, and so it, it takes a lot of political will to decide to go toe to toe with that. And I, I think that the January 6th commission has done a fairly good job moving the ball from it being plausible, but highly unlikely that Trump should get charged to increasingly plausible uh, and even to the point of likely that he should get charged. And the question is whether, whether Department of Justice agrees. 
So the second part of this question is about Raffensperger, but we have to just address this now that you brought it up and we'll get back to Raffensperger in one second and we'll do that really quickly. But um, so, yeah, so, I mean, just gauging all of the noise, all of the actions, all the activities, everything you've seen, what is the probability at this point you think that, yeah, they're probably going to indict him for these activities? So six months ago, I would have said very unlikely. Uh, Now I would say plausible maybe i don't know if it's over 50 percent but it's in the neighborhood of i would no longer be surprised if it happened i don't think it's more likely than not to happen uh this is classic waffling this is like telling a client how many years they're going to get well maybe uh the answer is it's less than 50 percent, but not less than 10 percent. so um I was on the fence about whether or not I wanted it to happen. I, I'm firmly, I firmly believe they've broken the law, yeah. um, at least, or, or at the very least, they've undermined democracy. I mean, when somebody says, "Hey, let's fake an election," right. to me, that's just the absolute antithesis of what we want happening. But, um, but I've always been on the fence because I knew of of the dangers. I knew the rhetoric. I knew what was going on in areas of the world that I'm not privy to. But people are always reporting on. Uh, and I got a very vivid illustration of this when Trump's home was raided. And yes. you're a prolific uh, Twitter user. Um, so I've noticed, even as somebody who was on the fence about this, somebody who I thought clearly had broken the law, but I was worried about vi- political violence, civil war, talk of secession, all that type of stuff. Even as somebody who was worried, I have been taken aback by the rage and the sort of the encouragement of a civil war, a national divorce, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, tell us a bit about as somebody who's prolific on Twitter, you're yeah. online, you see these kinds of conversations. What have you been seeing in the days since? It's a very polite way of saying I have a problem. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think the message we are getting very clearly is if you hold us to account, if you use a rule of law against us, we're going to burn it all down. Uh, that to me is the message, you know, increasingly we're going to, we're going to do anything you do to us. We're going to do to you. Um, we're going to, you know, dismantle the FBI. We're going to fire all the bureaucrats, uh, so on the whole delegitimizing of the process of the concept of, uh, someone like Donald Trump being held accountable to the law and it's dressed up in this in, in this guise that everything against him is illegitimate but that's that's just based on faith on belief it's not based on facts it's it's you know it, it's a centimeter deep uh so the basic decision to be made is is when you have people very credibly saying um if you try to apply the law to us we're going to burn everything down what do you do uh, do you yield to that because you don't want everything burned down? Uh, or do you say, no, we've got to enforce the rule of law uh, and then live with the consequences? Uh, and it's not an easy question. Uh, I do think it's going to be incredibly disruptive uh, up to and very likely including significant violence uh, if Trump is charged and tried. But I'm not sure that we can survive in the long term the spectacle of people doing whatever they want to do, flouting the law, committing any crime they want. Uh, and then if you try to use the law against them, saying, if you do that, we'll kill you. Because that's more or less the message. 
I don't know if it was Jonathan last or somebody was saying something about this. So I'm not going to claim, you know, total originality here, but uh, I, I, let me, let me be clear before I say this, I, I am very concerned about political violence. I, I think there's a powder keg just waiting to, to, to be ignited here. But with that being said, um, it's not going to take much to set this off. There are any number of Trump just losing in 2024, Right. Trump losing legitimately again by 10 million votes or whatever and claiming it was rigged for a second time could set it off. I I don't think we can keep pushing this further down the road because in in my mind, what I feel like is like that this is going to be set off at some point anyway. Would we rather have political violence and lose our democracy? Right. Or retain our democracy and still be dealing with political violence. Does that make sense? I think sooner or later you got to stand up to the bully. Uh, I mean, there have been periods of time in law enforcement in this country where uh, criminals have basically said, you know, we're going to kill people if you try to enforce the law against us. That was often what happened in the 30s with the mob and with uh, during prohibition. And you can yield to that or not. I think it's a, a danger to yield to it. And as you suggest, I think that this sort of spirit that Trump has invoked is going to be exercised no matter what we do. So, and we've seen it being exercised already. So when, when the Trumpists say, well, now we're going to come after you, I mean, they already have, right? Uh, We saw Donald Trump using and abusing foreign relations to offer military support to a foreign country in exchange for it promising to investigate a political rival. I mean, that's that's purely what we're talking about here. And uh, the notion, how much worse can it get in terms of what they're going to do? How much more open about it are they going to be? The notion that if suddenly the Department of Justice breaks down, that Trumpists, that this movement is going to start respecting the rule of law applying it neutrally and not using the government to attack their foes, simply not credible. So you've written um, this really interesting piece called, I think it was Alex Jones and the Tower of Babel um, in your Substack. So uh, first of all, do a little plug for your Substack. Tell us about your Substack. You see, I'd feel better doing a plug for it if I wrote for it more often. But uh, <laughs> so I wrote a, I write a Substack uh, called the Popat Report, uh, sort of an evolution of a blog I wrote for many years and used to write about much more often. But I write about free speech and criminal justice issues that that interest me. Uh, much more of my time these days is spent uh, on a uh, podcast called Serious Trouble about uh, serious legal disputes like the ones we've been talking about. Yeah, and uh, that's promoted there as well. So, uh, so, anyway, so that's where I saw this. And uh, to be quite honest with you, uh, as somebody who subscribes to Substacks, uh, I much prefer infrequent quality than uh, frequent just sort of, you know, filler in my inbox. So, I wouldn't feel too bad about that. Uh, but anyway, so uh, you, you raised some really interesting points in here. One of them is that um, different camps in American society are using language in different ways. And this is very, very apparent when you see Alex Jones in the court of law because the court is using language in a very um, literal way, right? And trying to determine whether or not uh, people have said things that are true or false, opinion or not. And he is using them in sort of an artistic way. So tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say that that uh, Alex Jones was using language differently than the court was using it. Sure. So Alex Jones's case is a little weird because, you know, for for defying discovery requirements, he got a default judgment entered against him. So the, the case was not ultimately about whether or not he committed libel. 
uh, which would have been an even more robust exploration of these ideas. But, you know, courts and looking at language and things like libel cases are being very analytical and uh, literal and specific. They're saying, what exactly did you say? Did you mean it uh, as a statement of fact? How do we analyze it exactly what its meaning is in context? It's, it's almost scientific. It's precise. And it's treating people as if they speak carefully. But a lot of modern discourse, especially by politicians and pundits, is more emotive. So it's it's saying it's not literal doesn't fully capture it. It's uh, painting word pictures. It's expressing emotions. And it can't really be consumed literally. And I think people grasp this when they came up with the cliche that Trump should be taken seriously, but not literally. In other words, you have to seriously consume the um, the sort of the values and the feelings he's expressing, but not literally accept uh, the particular uh, assertions he's making as fact. So the problem is, uh, it's really hard to run a country when so many people operate in sort of tone paintings of emotion and not discussions of specific facts. And it's really hard to run a court. So we have seen these repeated clashes of these different types of talking over the last few years, many of them centered around Trump or the election. So, you know, we have all the people being sued by Dominion and and other people in the election machinery business for talking about how the election was stolen and uh, the election machines are run, you know, either by Italian satellites or I believe uh, by the ghost of Hugo Chavez or something like that. Uh, and th- the problem is this is a clash between people venting their spleen and uh, talking about things to express how they feel and courts looking, what's the literal meaning of this and is it literally true? And you see, you get this kind of disconnect. Uh, and, you know, in defamation law, one of the the first question you tend to ask in the defamation analysis is, is this a provable statement of fact? Uh, or is this a hyperbole or political rhetoric or a statement of opinion? And it used to be easier to do that when the lines were cleaner. Uh, and it used to be easier to do that when less of society was consumed with this emotional venting. Uh, so it now, as, as that gets more mainstream, uh, a way for us to consume ideas and entertainment, it gets harder to suss those out. Uh, you know, and so part of it is that the the people who engage in the emotive speech don't really want to completely admit it. So, uh, you know, you have people like Sidney Powell, the, uh, you know, deliberately performatively outrageous lawyer who is uh, making uh, election corruption charges on Trump's behalf, simultaneously arguing in court that these are opinions and political rhetoric and hyperbole and arguing in public. No, I mean, this literally the election was stolen. Things like that. You have Alex Jones doing the same thing over and over again, sometimes in court saying that he's a character uh, when he's on the air and other times going back and saying, no, I mean this, you know, so you've got this constant push pull between what is good in court, uh, what works as legal strategy and what works as a strategy for public relations or really coming down to it for making money by triggering people's emotions. 
So you write and you talk a lot about the First Amendment, and I'm very concerned with the poisoning of the American mind. If you watch cable news, not just on the right, so not just on Fox News or Newsmax or One America, but if you look at CNN or MSNBC, I mean, you're going to see a lot of things that just are not true. They're partially true. They're, um, you know, distorted in some way. Uh, and on many of these channels, you're just getting a fire hose of misinformation and disinformation every single day. So, and I get that there's all sorts of problems with trying to regulate this stuff, but is there anything we can do to rein this in? So, I don't think there's anything easy we can do. Um, what we as individuals can do is try to do better in the sense of um, try to model fairness, admitting when we're wrong, being open to criticism of what we say, uh, and doing what sometimes is sort of scorned as both sides in it, uh, you know, looking at both sides of a particular argument. So like in the last few years, even though I think that many of the things that Donald Trump has done have been criminal and appalling, I spent a lot of time explaining why, no, well, it's not a violation of that law. No, it's not a violation of that law. No, you can't just arrest him for RICO tomorrow. Because I think it's important to get accurate information out there. So I think to the extent we can, we can avoid pandering to our crowds and tell them both when we think they're right and when we think they're wrong, then we can create sort of a, a more of a trust. A lot of what's happening here is I think we've lost any institutions in which there's universal trust. Uh, there's, there's no Walter Cronkite. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's much less trust in the government. Uh, and some people would say it's a good thing that we shouldn't have trusted the government to begin with, and we shouldn't have trusted Walter Cronkite uncritically, and so forth. But the complete lack of universally respected and accepted institutions means that there's not kind of an easy way to check all this div disinformation, whoever it comes from. I think that people have to make an effort to rebuild that trust and rebuild institutions that earn that trust. And that means uh, listening to the better, better angels of our nature and, and not doing what feels viscerally good, uh, not uh, purely dunking on people. And I'm the worst violator of this. I dunk on people all the time. But What do you mean, you know, Pope I, What are you talking uh, about? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I also make an effort to say, well, this person's right about this. Right. Or this criticism of someone I hate is actually wrong and here's why. So I think we need to model that behavior to work towards building a type of trust where people will listen to the analysis of why something is right or wrong. So, you know, I, I think I've done work so that I can get people to listen to me, at least, about how you go about getting a search warrant. So maybe they won't accept the absolutely wrong disinformation about how you get a search warrant. Maybe they won't agree with me about whether or not it was just to get it or whether there was probable cause, but maybe they will now accept when I explain you go to a magistrate judge and this is what you have to submit. So I think we've got to work towards that end and it takes uh, a lot of effort and it takes some discipline. Not, I don't mean so much in terms of hard work, but I mean in terms of trying to tamp down your own partisan spirit, which I think sometimes is very difficult.
you know, I teach uh, at the university. And so people assume that because I am a college professor that I must be extremely liberal and I'm actually not. My political views are extremely centrist. I'm not even sure what I would consider myself at this point, but people just assume that I am. And so I look at how people talk about what we do at the university and it often bears no resemblance to what's actually being done. So right now, a lot of people are talking incessantly about critical race theory, right? And I agree that some of the people who talk about critical race theory in support of it, they make really extreme claims that aren't true. And when people hear that, they assume that, well, everybody at the university must be saying those things and therefore we can't trust college professors. But that's not actually how it plays out. Those are the extreme people, right? So if you come into my classroom, I teach our race in America course here at the university. Uh, I teach what the actual data says causes racial inequality. And when students ask about critical race theory, I will tell them, look, here's the list of things that are absolutely supported by the data and they can actually, uh, you know, credibly um, show through empirical research. And here's a list of things that are claimed in this theory that really are not supported. And so we really critically deconstruct that theory and show what's true and what just is not supported as we do with everything in the college classroom, right? And I, but I get, I get why people don't trust college professors because there are people who are very loud, who are out there saying things are sort of getting over their skis and making claims that aren't supported by the facts. And so the assumption is, well, all college professors are doing that, right? Right. I, I think I think that there uh, there is a lot of intolerance of serious discussion and and demand for sort of uncritical dogma uh, all over the place, uh, right and left, and that it's not particularly healthy. I do think that things a critical race theory is is a good example because I think we can use people's concerns to open their eyes to, to concepts that they've been told to distrust. So take what's going on right now, what the right is saying right now, that the system, because of these biased insiders who have their own agendas, is corrupt and is, you know, uh, devoted to going after conservatives. Uh, the whole idea of the deep state, the whole idea of the, uh, you know, career bureaucrats and the system being biased against conservatives is a conception of the state and society that you can just give a quarter twist to and it's critical race theory. Uh, because if you can believe the system is like that about against conservatives, why the hell can't you believe it's like that against people who aren't white? Uh, to me, it doesn't make sense. So uh, I think we can use people's anxieties and concerns to get them to sort of broaden the idea. You know, I've been trying for years now to use people's concerns about use of law enforcement powers against people related to Trump to get them to think about how it's used against everybody else. Um, and, you know, not just yell at them, but say, yeah, I see. I see you think it's terrible that they can come to you expecting you to lie, get you to lie about something they know about and then charge you for that. Yes, it's outrageous. Here's how it's happening all the time. Do you care about that now? I think we try to do that. So instead of completely dismissing people's anxieties that are being driven partially by disinformation, what if we could broaden them uh, and try to come to some sort of agreement on what some of the problematical parts of the system are? 
I have students come to me constantly and I'm a sociologist. I have no idea what, whether you should go to law school or not. Uh, and they're constantly asking me, should I go to law school or shouldn't I? And I, and I, and I you know, I talk about like some plot, you know, opportunity cost and, and, you know, the debt you're going to incur and uh, can you get a job that's going to pay it back and is what you really want to do. And, but I don't know anything about that. So if you were in my shoes, I'd love to just, whatever you say right now, I'm going to clip it and I'm going to play it for my students when they come to my office. So uh, when you're considering whether or not to pursue a law degree, what are the good reasons to do it? And what are the bad reasons to do it? So law used to be something you went into because you couldn't think of anything else to do sometimes. So there are people who really wanted to be lawyers, but there are other people who are sort of, well, I'm not a doctor or an engineer, so I guess I'm going to law school. I don't think it's any more a good thing for that. Uh, I think that the market is much tighter. It's harder to get jobs. The jobs there are are often more difficult. Uh, and it's a, it's a poor default choice. I think it's better if there are things you are passionate about um, and you want to do. I also think it's no longer a great career to go into without having done some work and some thinking about why you want to do it and what it's really like. Taking advantage of things like college internships uh, or stuff like that, uh, you know, talking to actual lawyers, seeing what they do, reading about it, seeing what different types of lawyers do. So you actually get a sense of whether this interests you or not, or whether it sounds absolutely dreadful. Uh, because, you know, a big trend now is people leaving the law uh, because of the economics of it or because of the lifestyle or whatever it is. So I, I guess I, I tell people, go to law if you've led an examined life about potentially being a lawyer and it still interests you. Um, and make choices early about economics. So you can get very rich. You can make huge amounts of money making huge lifestyle sacrifices. So you can make right now from a top school going into a top firm as a first year student, a quarter million dollars, you know, just a snot nosed kid out of law school. Uh, but you're going to pay for that with a miserable life for a while. Uh, so make those choices early and think about what interests you, what makes you passionate, what you could see doing for a lot of years. One good thing about law is that it is fairly flexible in terms of building skills you can use elsewhere and skills that can be combined with uh, other things and, and put to use in business or things like that. So be aware of that. Be conscious of that. But nobody should go into law school without having explored it thoroughly first uh, as an idea and as, as what the options are. Yeah, the experiential part of that. I mean, I tell, I tell students that all the time. How many people I've seen, they get to the student teaching phase of being a teacher and realize they don't like kids that much, right? Like <laughs> right. If, you, if you can't stand doing something for one day, right. uh, how can you do it every day, right? <laughs> like it's, uh, that's, you know, internships, that kind of stuff. All right. right. So, uh, let, let's, let's do some rapid fire to, to stop here or to, to wrap up here. How did you come up with the name Pope Hat on Twitter? It's an old in joke coming from the blog, uh, really all the way back to like 2006. And uh, it's an inside joke among friends. Uh, a friend uh, liked to do origami and uh, he could make an origami Pope's hat. And he was invulnerable while wearing the hat playing poker. Uh, unbeatable. <laughs> and so it, it's a reference to sort of uh, people who write online, people who are pundits uh, think they're infallible. 
and so it was sort of a reference to that. Uh, so tell us where we can find your Substack and give us your pitch for why we should read it. Substack is at uh, the Popat Report. Um, and I do write there maybe once a month-ish these days and talk about issues of criminal justice and uh, free speech and r- related ideas. Uh, or I have a weekly show, uh, which is uh, Serious Trouble, uh, at uh, Serious Trouble on Substack, where uh, with uh, my co-host Josh Barrow, we talk about the legal dilemmas and catastrophes in the news at the time. Is that also on like Apple and Spotify, those sorts of things? Yeah, anywhere you have podcasts. Right. Uh, and uh, and we've been kind of cheery here at the end, so we'll end with some doom and gloom. Percentage chance that uh, 2024 is the beginning of a long slide towards autocracy. Substantial. 50% wow. or more. 50% uh, or more. Yeah, I, I think we're in for a bad time. I don't know... Uh, though, how long it is or how permanent it is. I think we have pendulum swings in America and we always have. Uh, and I've never seen one towards autocracy before. <laughs> well, I mean, it <laughs> seems that way at the time. And, you know, I think about, you know, when, when just around the time I was born, 68, 69, how terrible everything looks then with assassinations and civil disorder and a terrible war and all this sort of thing. And, and people really thought society was collapsing. Um, and, you know, we got through that and the pendulum swung. Uh, and I think this is a story I like to tell. I, I think about my grandparents and uh, my grandfather going to uh, officer training school and my grandmother pregnant with my mom. And, uh, you know, he was on base to study for the test the next day when she went into labor. And she didn't want to bother him because that test could determine where he got billeted and really whether he lived or died. And so she took a taxi to the hospital and gave birth to my mom on her own. Uh, And then grandpa went off and sailed off to the Pacific in World War II. Uh, They didn't know what the hell was going to happen. They were facing terrifying things and they stood up to it uh, in part uh, because of, you know, this this American spirit we have. Uh, and I think that the same spirit, the same determination will get us through this ultimately, even if we have very dark times ahead. Uh, I read the other day on Twitter that Tom Nichols said, uh, someone asked him, like, you know, should we be excited that we're going to turn these things around and hold people accountable? He said, I look to Ken White for when I should be irrationally exuberant. Uh, I can't wait to to show him that you said 50% or more. Uh, because you were sounding rather optimistic the other day. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about, does it look more likely that the justice system is going to try to hold Trump to account? I would say yes. Uh, Is that going to be part of what provokes an increasing slide into autocracy? Possibly. But uh, no one said the fight for the rule of law was going to be easy. Uh, and so, you know, we may just have a very ugly period of American history to get through and to fight for. Ken White, you can find him. You can find him at his Substack. You can find him on his podcast, Serious Trouble. You can also find him at Popat on Twitter. Uh, Ken White, thank you so much for joining the program today. Well, thank you. I had a great time and I appreciate the opportunity. Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and make sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. Happy trails to you Until we
again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again Good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.